Good morning, everybody. We welcome you today to Oasis. And we are uh, kind of officially launching a new series, um, technically next week, uh, called Ecclesia, uh, Becoming the Church. And Ecclesia is a Greek word. Um, among other things, it simply means a congregation or church. I'd like you, if you would, to say that word with me so we can understand how to pronounce it for the next seven or eight weeks, okay? Uh, ready? Here we go. Ecclesia. One more time. Ecclesia. You know, there's a lot of confusion these days about the role and purpose of the church. And so we're going to dive into Scripture and look at some of the many images and metaphors that Scripture writers use to describe the true church of Jesus. However, today, uh, we're going to start with kind of a warm-up message. I don't know if you've ever been to a musical concert or to see a stand-up comedian uh, but you know that they usually have, like, before they come on, they have what is called um, a warm-up act. And the warm-up act is kind of designed to get the crowd engaged and make sure they're awake, and it kind of sets the tone for the rest of the evening. Well, that's what we're going to try to do this morning uh, for the rest of this series. Today is a warm-up message. Every now and then, not often, but the warm-up act is actually better than the act itself. That's probably not going to happen today, so don't get your hopes up, okay? <laughs> but what I do hope to have, uh, have happen is I want us to see how vitally important this topic is. If you were here last week, you heard Robbie mention that uh, we observed Pentecost Sunday. And at one point, Jesus, he was physically present on this earth. And when he left, he said to his followers, he said, you know, I have this dream that every person would come into the kingdom Every person would come into a relationship with me and my father. And it was so important to Jesus that he set out a strategy. He had a game plan. He said, first of all, this is going to be a team effort. It's not going to happen with just me or with just by one person. So Jesus sends 120 of his closest followers to an upper room in Jerusalem, and they wait there united because they're going to carry out the plan. And Jesus reminds them, that they're also going to receive not only the strength and courage, but the gifts to carry out this strategy. Because the Holy Spirit is going to come and empower them. And of course, on Pentecost, that's what happened. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. But Jesus wasn't finished. There was another part to this strategy, and I want to make sure that you understand this going into this series, because really the whole series kind of hinges on this. Let me explain it by way of something that happened to me when I was a ninth grader many, many, many years ago in junior high school. I played for our ninth grade basketball team, and toward the middle of the season, we had a huge game against one of the big teams in our conference. In fact, they had a kid on that team who looked like he should already be in college. He shaved like twice a day. An outstanding player. In fact, he went on to play at Georgetown with Patrick Ewing uh, and John Thompson, the coach there. Now, I played forward for our team. If you know anything about basketball, I was kind of short, so it was kind of unusual. But the reason I was a forward is because I was a tenacious defender. Wasn't very good on offense, but I could guard other players really well. So during the practice that week, the coach pulled me aside and he said to me, he said, listen, he said, we have a secret weapon this week for this team. I really, like, we do have a college ringer or do you go out and get somebody, you know? He's like, no, he said, I want you to know that this week you're our secret weapon. We're going to turn you loose on this team. 
Now, I'd never been turned loose on a team in my entire life. <laughs> I got kind of excited for a minute. And then he explained what, I, what he meant. He says, you're going to guard their star player. He said, I want you to guard him like your Siamese twins. Everywhere you go, you're going to be with this guy. If he goes to the bathroom at halftime, I want you in there with him. <laughs> We're going to turn you loose on this other team. See, the last thing Jesus does before he leaves, Jesus gathered his friends together and he said, here's the strategy. I'm going to turn you loose. So I'm leaving. I've been here with you teaching and you've watched me do things. And now the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And he said, believe it or not, you're going to do greater things than I've done. You're going to be witnesses, he said, first to Jerusalem and then to Judea and then to Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. He said, you're going to be scattered. He said, but don't be discouraged. Don't lose your faith. This is my strategy. I'm going to turn you loose. Now, let me kind of pause here to preempt the question that some of you are going to ask me. Did we win the basketball game? No, we got murdered. <laughs> I went into to halftime, halftime with four fouls. And even though I held the other guy to just a few points, the rest of the team was even as good or better than he was. And our coach kept saying to me at halftime, he said, listen, we just need to turn Grimes a little more loose on them in the second half. And I'm thinking, I'm as loose as I'm ever going to get, coach. I fouled out in the third quarter. And that's where the analogy kind of breaks down here. Because people say, Jesus' strategy for Oasis Church, what is it? And it's very simple. He's just going to turn you loose. See, if someone were to ask you tomorrow, on Monday, what church are you a part of? I wonder what your response would be. If they said to you, where's the church that you're a part of? See, the correct answer really would not be 3330 Winter Lake Road. The correct answer would be, Monday morning our church is working in a dentist office on South Florida. Our church is going to classes at George Jenkins High School. Our church is getting children fed and dressed at a home in Winter Haven. Our church is working at offices in downtown Lakeland. Our church is teaching at Southeastern University. Our church is working with at-risk youth from all over Polk County. Our church is serving people at restaurants in Lakeside Village. You see, here's the deal, friends. We gather and we worship and we learn on Sunday. It's a very good thing, a very good thing. But on Monday, Jesus hits the road. On Monday, Jesus is supposed to be turned loose on this city. And we are, in reality, when you think of Oasis, you really should think of Oasis as church all week. Now, when you think about it, Jesus' plan for transforming the world was nothing short of staggering. No matter what you may believe about God or Jesus or the church, when you think about these little band, this little band of followers and the impact they had, it's nothing short of amazing. There's a great book I've mentioned before to you, a guy named Rodney Stark. He's a sociologist. And the subtitle of the book is How the Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religion in the Western World in a Few Centuries. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? But according to the best historical estimates, Get this, in the year 40 A.D., now remember, Jesus started with 120 followers. When he left this earth, maybe one thousandth of one percent, let me say that again, one thousandth of one percent of the population of the Roman Empire were followers of Jesus. 
I want you to think about how small that number is. Think of like the chances of the Bucks winning the Super Bowl, okay? <laughs> By 350 AD, think now, just a few centuries later, 300 years later, 56% of the Roman Empire was Christian. 56%. That's 40% per decade, folks. It's staggering. And here's how it happened. How did a tiny one one thousandth of one percent have such an impact? Was it because they became better arguers about religion? Was it because they voted the right people into office? Was it because they had more resources and more money than anybody else? Clearly not. It was because the presence and the way of Jesus in their midst created a community like the world had never seen. They became the ecclesia. These are the words in the book of Acts. The description of the church that Robbie mentioned earlier. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That was the way of Jesus. And to the fellowship. In other words, they gathered to learn. And then they got to know each other. And they got real. And they confessed. And they were authentic. To the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe by what God was doing in their midst. They became so generous. There was no needy persons among them. And they enjoyed the favor of all the people. Eugene Peterson translates the last line in the Message Bible. He says, and people liked what they saw. People looked at the church and they liked what they saw. I wonder how often people say that today. I'll give you some examples of what it looked like in the Roman culture. Most of you know this, but the Roman culture was kind of strictly hierarchical. In those ancient days, people were divided into rigid classes. For example, at the top of the shelf, there was the Roman Senate. But just under the Roman Senate, there was a group known as the equestrian class. These people had a lot of money and a lot of power. And if you belonged to this class, um, you were prominent enough to receive a horse from public funds, thus the term equestrian. Beneath that was the decurian class. These people were still wealthy, not quite as wealthy as the equestrians, but they had a lot of power in local government. Beneath them were what is known as Roman citizens. They had wealth, uh, some wealth, but not as much as the others, and they had some rights. In fact, most of you know that the Apostle Paul was a Roman citizen. And below the Roman citizens were what is known as free people. These were people who had been slaves, but somewhere along the line, they had uh, gained enough resources to buy their freedom. They still were not considered citizens, but at least they were free. And then, of course, on the bottom rung of this ladder were slaves. They occupied the lowest status in Roman culture. And everything, and I mean everything in their society, reinforced this kind of system. Clothes showed what class you were in. I know that in our culture, clothes would never, ever reflect someone's status. But in ancient Rome, that's the way it worked. For example, the decurions... And the equestrians could wear stripes on their togas to show their status. If you were a slave, you wore a tunic. You did not wear a toga. Just as a reminder that this is the class that you're in. Much of Roman life was rearranged around what are known as guilds. They were kind of uh, uh, groups where wealthy uh, patrons from the equestrian class would uh, gather. And these guilds frequently would hold festivals. And if you were... Uh, at a meal at a festival, for example, the equestrian class was always served first, and then afterwards would be the decurian class, and then on down, of course. 
And if you were a free slave or, or, excuse me, a free person or maybe even a slave, you went last. And you might, if you were lucky, get crumbs or leftovers. That's the way it worked. But in the midst of all this, this entire system, this crazy system, a new community emerges on the scene that has a totally radically different game plan. They said, you know, Jesus didn't really deal with people like that. Jesus came to, not to be served, but to serve. So if you're a slave now and you go into the house and you gather as the church and an equestrian kneels down and serves you food, it just blows you away. You start crying. They start crying. You've never been served your, li- your whole life. You're a slave for crying out loud. And now an equestrian is giving you the best food. There's never been a community like this, friends. No one had ever seen anything like it before. Here's another example. Just as a way of uh, asking this, in the ancient world, what do you think was better, to be a boy or to be a girl? By far to be a boy. One historian writes, exposure of unwanted female infants... That's the practice of abandoning them until they would die somewhere. Was legal, morally accepted, widely practiced by all social classes in the Greco-Roman world. Here's an actual letter written during the first century by a Roman husband to his wife, who apparently was pregnant. This is what he writes. Know that I am still in Alexandria. I beg you to take good care of our baby son. If you are delivered of a child before I come home, if it is a boy, keep it. If it is a girl, discard it. You have sent me word, don't forget me. How could I forget you? I beg you not to worry. This is a guy who thinks of himself as a great husband. And then Jesus comes along and imagines a different community. We talked about this on Mom's Day. He taught as a rabbi who had never taught before, and he would teach women. He valued them. He would actually include women in his community. Jesus thought that all life was sacred. Jesus said, you know, remember the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. He is one. Him shall you love with all your heart, your soul, your strength. And then he adds one more to that from the book of Leviticus. He says, and love your neighbor as yourself. All life is sacred. Little baby girls as well as little baby boys. Under Caesar Augustus, many of you know this, widows were actually forced to remarry. And if they didn't remarry, they had to pay a fine to the Roman government for outliving their husband. Widows were considered drags on the economy. But in the new community, the community of Jesus, care for widows became one of the marks of authentic faith. One of Jesus' followers, Paul, would write to the church at Galatia. He would say, In Christ now there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. I mentioned this before, but Thomas Cahill, a writer, says that Paul is the first person in the history of the human race in world literature to argue that all human beings are equal. Let me give you one more example. Two times in the very early history of the church, one of them in about 65 A.D. and one in about 251 A.D., there were massive epidemics. Historians believe that it probably was smallpox. It wiped out this epidemic, these two epidemics, between one-fourth and one-third of the population of the cities in the Roman Empire. 
It created so much fear in people that one of the ancient writers named Dionysius says that was, this was the general response of people in the Roman world. He said they pushed sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt, hoping to avert disease. And then this new community comes along. And they said to themselves, you know, that's not the Jesus that we serve. Jesus cared for the sick. Jesus would actually touch leopards, lepers when nobody else would touch them. He actually risked his life. He got in trouble for it. And they said, now we're the body and he's with us. And so they did what Jesus did. They took people in and they cared for them, the sick and the dying. And they did this, friends, at the cost of their own life. In fact, the epidemics, historians say, is one of the great responses of the church. And it played a huge role in the spread of Jesus' way throughout the ancient world. Never had there been a community turned loose on the world like this community of Jesus. And no matter what you may believe about faith and about God and about Jesus, whatever happened there, it did change the world. And now it's our turn. Here's what I want you to know. As messed up as the church has been in some ways, Jesus still believes in his dream called the church. He still believes it is the strongest force in this world for good. The way Jesus put it was, he said, I will build my church and the very powers of hell will not defeat it. But it will never be accomplished from the sidelines. God has called people to be a part of his church. Of course, to be a part of his kingdom, but part of his kingdom is his church. And people today have so many negative connotations about church. I know people personally, very close to me, that do not even attend a church anymore because you've just kind of given up on the notion. Some people just don't see it as a viable way of life in the 21st century. But I want you to know that God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, they have not given up on their church. So I'm going to ask you during this series, if you would, for just at least the next few weeks, if you would, to kind of buy into it wholeheartedly. Just kind of for a moment, lay aside your opinions your past experiences, your bad experiences with Christians and with church, just lay them aside for just a little bit and let's really look at what the church is supposed to be like. I want to start today by talking about what this means for us in very concrete terms. You know, people give me a lot of books to read, a lot of CDs to listen to, a lot of podcasts to listen to. And they'll give me stuff and some of it's actually very pretty, you know, pretty good. And a while back, this has been probably a couple of years ago now, a guy here at Oasis gave me a CD of a pastor in New York. And he told me that he and a friend who attended that church in New York exchanged CDs from their churches. He says that he would send me sermons from his pastor. And uh, when you have a really good sermon, Phil, I send it to him. <laughs> and I didn't have the heart to ask him, like, how many CDs had he sent? <laughs> but I got this one, and it was a very, a very uh, challenging passage from the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 11 says, When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. And what he was talking about here is that there's a certain group of people that when they rise to the top of their field, when they make it, nobody around them gets envious or jealous or complains or grumbles. 
In fact, these people uh, have such character and, and they have such love and such generosity that everybody around them says, you know what, this is going to be good news for everybody. In our, in our uh, terminology, in our vocabulary, this would be good news for the whole company, for the whole school, for the whole city, for the whole department. That's very interesting because the word righteous in our day has lost a lot of its beauty. Usually when you hear that term, it means somebody who is self-righteous. Very rarely does someone come up to you and say, you're righteous and you mean, and mean it as a compliment. Okay? There was a period of time in our culture where people would talk about a righteous babe or a righteous hunk or dude, right? Theologically, that's not the same thing. In Hebrew, the word is siddikim. And biblically, the righteous one, the siddikim, are defined this way. Listen to this. They are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. They are willing to disadvantage themselves to bless the community. And of course, the paragon of this is Jesus. He was immersed in the Old Testament. Uh, Testament. He loved the Sadiqim, and he spent a lot of time redefining, of course, what it meant to be righteous. One time he described it like this. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. That's what happened. This new community, the people, they became a light of the city. And what this means is you're the kind of person about whom other people would say, you know, I don't even believe what they believe. I don't even follow the same God that they follow. But I really shudder to think what our neighborhood would be like if they weren't a part of it. This is what the writer of Proverbs is talking about. This is what it means to be light of the world, salt of the earth. Be the kind of person who would be the kind of person that someone would say, they add so much value and so much love and so much joy and so much life to our place that I don't agree with them about everything, but I sure hope they don't go away. That's what righteous living looks like. Now here's where I think we as a church, this is personal opinion, has gotten kind of off track. We have reduced the gospel, maybe unintentionally, but we have reduced the message of Jesus to something less than it originally was. I've said this to you before. I believe this with all my heart. Jesus' message was not just, let me tell you the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. His gospel was, now the kingdom of God has come to earth through me, through my person, my life, through my body and my teachings. Now it's here. And listen, you can get in on it right now. That, friends, is the good news. Now here's the deal. Of course, that includes the promise of forgiveness as an act of grace. Of course, that includes appropriating the death of Christ on the cross for your sins. Of course, that means the promise of life one day when we die in the afterlife. But it's not just about forgiveness, and it's not just about the promise of going to heaven. It is good news right now. And it is good news even for people who don't believe it. 
This is why when somebody is converted and someone says, I'm going to follow Jesus, and they start to follow him and they do what he said and they become more compassionate and more generous and more loving and more joyful, it is good news for everybody. Some of you know I was a youth pastor many, many, many years ago. One of the things that used to happen from time to time, at least when I was a youth pastor, was my house would get toilet papered. You know what toilet papering is, right? Your house get rolled. This happened to me probably, I don't know, three or four times a month. <laughs> and sometimes, to be very honest with you, it was a work of art. <laughs> it was just a masterpiece. And my neighbors, they thought it was all funny. They got used to it. They would just wake up one morning and my house would be completely white. And uh, one particular morning I woke up and the kids in my group had just completely rolled everything. Trees, bushes, the whole nine yards. And I looked out the window in my backyard and I see this elderly couple that lived behind me. And they were walking in my backyard and they were picking up all the toilet paper. And these folks were like in their late 70s, early 80s. But they were such devoted followers of Jesus that they just started coming over and helped clean up my yard. And I thought, you know, that's the weapons of Jesus' kingdom. The weapons of his kingdom are rakes and brooms and visits and listening ears and open hands and generous hearts and empty wallets. And Jesus' decision and his idea that when somebody decides to commit their life to him and they do it, it is good news for everybody. Let me tell you something. It is good news for Hindus and Muslims and atheists. It's good news for the office. It's good news for the school. It's good news. And if the gospel isn't good news for everybody... It isn't good news for anybody. Here's something else we need to know. Just as the message of Jesus is not just let me tell you how to go to heaven when you die, the mission of the church is not just to be a religious service provider. The goal of our church is not to make sure that things are going okay on the inside of this building while the rest of the world spirals downward. See, we gather on Sunday, and it's a good thing. But on Monday, Jesus hits the road. On Monday, Jesus is incarnate in neighborhoods and schools and offices and construction sites. About 100 years ago, there was an old revival preacher. Some of you have got it and remember this guy. His name was Billy Sunday. Some of you may have heard of him. Billy Sunday, he was an interesting character. But he used to say that the best thing that could happen to you was that you'd go to one of his revivals, get saved, walk into the street, be run over by a Mack truck, and go straight to heaven. Now, I'm going to tell you, that is not the way Jesus laid it out, okay? The get saved and die quick plan was not option A. Jesus had a little bit different approach. He said, I'm not going to just be about the here and now. He said, I'm going to make up there come down here. He said, I'm going to bring this life down into this fear. He said, and people, when they get this and they understand it, he said, it's such a good offer, they'll give up anything to be a part of it. He expressed this in the famous prayer that most of you know, the Lord's Prayer. We say it at weddings and funerals and football teams, sports teams say it before games. But we just kind of go on autopilot sometimes when we hear this. And Jesus taught us this and he said, Our Father who art in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. He said, in other words, may people come to understand, God, what a wonderful, wonderful being you are. What a fabulous community would be gathered around someone like you. He said, your kingdom come. In other words, he's talking about the range of God's will. Everything that is under the realm of authority of God. And then he's going all the way to the point that he says to people like you and me. He says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the question of the day is, do you think Jesus meant that? Do you really think Jesus meant that? Unfortunately, we've come to a point in Christianity where we almost believe that our only job is to get our afterlife destination taken care of. And then we kind of tread water until we get ejected and Jesus comes and kind of torches the entire place. Jesus never said, listen, get out of there so I can come there. <laughs> he said, pray, O oh God, make up there, come down here. In my life, in my church, in my office, my school, my family, my neighborhood, my city, my country, in this whole sorry, dark world sometimes. And the question is, can that happen? Because that was Jesus' plan. It includes the forgiveness of sin, thank God. It includes the promise of something beyond this world, thank God. But it includes much, much more than that. Here was his strategy. He said he would form out of his followers a spirit-empowered new community that would model for the world a radically, radically alternative way of life through which the kingdom of God would break into this world. It happened in the early years of the church and the people liked what they saw. And one of the saddest things in the world really to me is when the church forgets its calling and it becomes about itself. I love the true story about the Baptist church that had existed many, many years. It was a good place, good people there. But to be honest with you, it had become irrelevant to the community. People who didn't know God would never, ever think of it as a place that they would go to and meet God. It got to be so intolerable that finally the pastor brought in a fellow to talk about to the people the message of Jesus to kind of remind them what the church was really all about. And the guy that was brought in was very passionate about the mission of the church. So he described this Acts chapter 2 church and how Jesus wants the church to be good news for people who are far away from God and how a church, you know, they constantly have to be rethinking what they're doing because culture keeps changing. So at one point during the conversation, during the little meeting, a woman in the back raised her hand and she said, but what if I don't like change, preacher? What if I have a friend who just wants to come to a regular old traditional church? And the speaker, of course, he was quite adamant about the church. He said, you know, he said, there are churches like that on every corner. Most of them are dying. Your friend can find one real easily if that's the one they want to find. But I want to ask you, who's going to care about the people for those churches uh, who are not reaching them. 
He said, I want to know who will go after. And then he kind of just ripped off a string of adjectives. He says, who will go after the cigarette smoking, whistling, guzzling, wife swapping, adult channel watching, child neglecting, tax evading, ladder climbing, self-obsessed SOB. And there was a moment of silence in the room. Nobody ever heard that kind of language in a church before. And then one of the deacons in the back raised his hand and he says, you mean sons of Baptists? Who's going to reach sons and daughters of Baptists or Methodists or Oasians? What if it were you? What could happen if you got turned loose one time? And I'm going to tell you, this is as big as you can imagine and it's as small as you can imagine. His plan is if there's a busboy at a restaurant who's struggling to support his family, maybe he's even an atheist busboy. And one of his followers comes along, it should be good news for that busboy. Because if it isn't good news for everybody, it isn't good news for anybody. What if somebody got a heart for marriages and divorce rates went down and spousal abuse went down? What if little children right now who are born into settings where, to be honest with you, they have two strikes against them and the political systems are probably not going to save them? What if they were to have somebody come along to them, a Jesus person, and be Jesus to them? What if in a city where drug and alcohol abuse is still rampant, what if some people reached out to these folks because you know what it's like to be caught in that cycle of hopelessness? And Jesus said, I got a plan. He said, I'm going to turn them loose. <laughs> and the alternative community is going to help up there come down here. I'm going to ask you to think about that over the next few weeks. Right now, I just want you to think of this. Oasis does not just happen on Sunday. Oasis is an all-week church. Let's pray. Lord, we're going to come to the table now. And the reason that we come to the table so often is because we constantly need to recenter ourselves and remember that we belong to you. You said we're the body, the body of Christ. It's such a rich image, God, that we need everybody. We need everybody being good news. Good news to the poor, to the rich. Good news to male and female. Good news to every person. So as we come to the table today, God, may we kind of search our hearts and ask ourselves, When's the last time that God just turned me loose on someone? To love them, to accept them, to be a righteous presence of someone that they would say, wow, I'm really glad they're a part of our community. Help us to search our hearts as we take the bread and we take the cup today. And remember that we are the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is still your strategy for bringing hope to this world. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.